0: Good afternoon, Gaston Karate and
1: Dean this is Mary Beth. Mary Beth, I have listened to what Alan says and writes, and I understand he doesn't know how to make a phone call, he doesn't answer his phone, that you're the only one that does that. (laughs) That's correct.
0: (laughs) Welcome to Trust Hacker, the podcast for elder and special needs law attorneys hacking their way out of the trust and tax jungle, and seeking the sunny uplands of trust nirvana. And now, here's your guide, Bob Mason.
1: Welcome to Trust Hacker, where we explore the tricks and traps used by the country's best estate, elder, and special needs law attorneys when tackling complex trust, tax, or other practice issues. Trust hacking is the term I use to describe any shortcut, skill, or insight that will help you crush it in your practice. In other words... A trust hack is anything that solves a trust or tax or other practice problem in an inspirational or ingenious way. My guest for this episode is a high-end estate planning and asset protection attorney in Clearwater, Florida, but you'll find he has a tremendous amount to say to elder and special needs law attorneys. He's the lead author on Bloomberg BNA's estate tax planning in 2011 and 2012, Gassman and Markham on Florida and federal asset protection law, Florida law for tax, business, and financial planning advisors, eight steps to a proper Florida trust and estate plan. Do you think he's from Florida? A practical guide to kickback and self-referral laws for Florida physicians, the Florida Power of Attorney and Incapacity Planning Guide, the Florida Advisor's Guide to Counseling Same-Sex Couples, and a co author of the recently published Legal Guide to NFA Firearms and Gun Trusts, among others. He's published well over 100 peer review articles with publications such as Bloomberg BNA Tax and Accounting, Trusts and Estates Magazine, Estate Planning Magazine, The Florida Bar Journal, and Limeberg Estate Planning Network. He's also a past president of the Pinellas County Estate Planning Council and has co-chaired two annual Florida Bar programs for over 15 years, wealth protection and representing the physician. Perhaps my favorite, though, he publishes online the Thursday Report, which is a great, easy-to-read compendium of estates and tax news, hints and humor, and I'll tell you how to sign up for that later. My guest received both his law degree in LLM and tax from the University of Florida, He is Florida board certified in estate planning and trust law, as well as an accredited estate planner through the National Association of Estate Planners and Councils. In addition to his sense of humor and brilliance in the law, he has perhaps the best grasp of a good professional, personal lifestyle balance of anyone I've heard. Over the next half hour or so, I think you're going to understand why I wanted him to chat with us and share some of his practice insights. In this episode, we hack... Alan Gassman. Alan, thanks for joining me.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Bob. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, so this is really exciting.
1: Well, thanks, Alan. I'll tell you what. I just read your introduction, and I got tired. You're doing a lot. Why? Is it for your practice, or... Do you just like doing it?
0: Number one, I like doing it. I have a great time doing what I'm doing. A few years ago, probably about 10 years ago, I decided that the number one objective would be to like what I was doing. And that made all the other objectives so much easier to reach.
1: Well, how do you keep it on the road and between the lines? You've got so many balls in the air.
0: Yeah, with a great team and a very good organizational structure. There's no way to do nearly as many things as I'm able to get done without having some really amazing people that work with me and, quite candidly, some really amazing clients that we have the privilege of working for. It's really more about building that structure and enjoying the process of building that structure and being in that structure, than anything else, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and a lot of people talk about that. And sometimes, having walked walked down that path myself, as do most of my listeners, sometimes that's easier said than done. Um, I'll be interested in in hearing some ideas that you have on implementation. You know, I think you may have stumbled into an answer on, on the next thing I wanted to ask you about, and that that is, what is the one thing that you do that you feel has contributed most to your success over the years? That is
0: a really hard question. But if it was one thing, I think it's the fact that I know what I'm good at, and I know what my weaknesses are, and I've been able to build a team around me, and I've been able to build a clientele that works well for what I am, what I like to do, and and what I'm able to do properly. So early on, I was able to get hold of personality profiles and was able to learn about my personality, about the personality of people who work with me, about the personality of my clients, The personalities of my referral sources, and we are very much like fish in an aquarium where you have to be very careful with the balance. So my partner, I are very well balanced, our team is well balanced, and we try to make everything we do well balanced and within those parameters.
1: When you say personality profiles, are you talking about some of these testing instruments, or are you talking about just general descriptions of common personality types, or what are you talking about?
0: I'm talking about formal personality profile testing. Uh, The two that we've used the most often are the Colby, K-O-L-B-E, tests, and another testing service called Omnia Profiles. And it's quite interesting because the Colby test basically gives you four items and it rates you one through 10 in four different items. Whether you have a high fact finder, which means you want to read everything you can look at and you're very, very thorough. Or a low fact finder, meaning that you actually resist knowing a lot of information. And then whether you have a high follow through, meaning that when you start something, you really have to finish it. Or a low follow through, where when you start something, you resist finishing it. And then there's a quality that she calls the quick start. And the quick start is when you look at something, do you wanna change it around, improve it, make it better, make it different? Or every time you see something, do you want to not change it and resist change? And everyone has a different reading on those three factors. And depending upon what your reading is, you will compensate for it by having other people on your team who handle things in a different way. For example, on the fact finder, on a scale of one to 10, I am a five fact finder, which means that I want to know the major facts, I want to know the big picture, I need to know what's going on, but I don't have the need to know every detail before I have my sea legs about a situation. That's why it's really important as a tax lawyer that my two partners have very high fact finder scores, so before anything goes out that's complicated, it's going to be looked at very carefully by a high fact finder in our office and also by a high fact finder paralegal who does our proofreading. On the other hand, as a quick start, I have an, an eight quick start. So every time I see something, I want to improve it, I want to change it, I get my energy from making things happen. My partners are lower quick starts, so they can, they'll can they hold me back or they'll look at something much more carefully than I will. They may even talk me out of it. But With a high quick start and a middle fact finder, I'm able to sit down with a client I'm able to quickly understand their situation. I'm able to come up with some ideas that maybe nobody ever thought of for the client. But most importantly, I'm also able to walk out of that conference room and work with my team of high follow through, high fact finders to make sure that the job gets done right and that it gets, out, it gets out of the door on time. So I don't know if that helps you or not, but that's a lot of what we look at when we hire people, and when I talk to clients, and we, when we decide how to do things in our law firm.
1: How do you apply that to a client?
0: Well, I pretty much know within 15 minutes of sitting with a client, whether they are a high fact finder, where they need to have a lot of information, they need to give me a lot of information, I need to explain to them how the clock is made, or if they're a low fact finder, in which event they really don't want to know anything but for me to tell them the solution and what and the, mere, the, the bare essential. If I have a high fact finder client, they need a 15 minute explanation. A low fact finder client will be completely lost in the weeds if it takes me more than three minutes to explain something. I can also gauge whether a client is a high quick start, which also you know, is somewhat linked to attention deficit disorder. I have another, a number of clients, especially very successful entrepreneurs, and some brilliant physicians who I know have very short attention spans, and the only way I can really communicate well with them is to draw what I'm doing, to explain it in bullet points, to send them short emails that I make sure that they can read in bite size to make sure that I haven't lost them. And sometimes it's a lot of fun because you're sitting with two partners, and you're sitting with a husband and a wife, and you realize that one of them is a high fact finder, and one is a low fact finder. One's a high quick start, the other's a low quick start, and you figure out why they can't get along and where their communications issues have been. So once you know what your client is, then you know how to best handle them. I have some clients that I would never write a five-page letter, and I have some clients that I can't. Explain anything in under five pages because of the way they think.
1: I'm going to uh, definitely come back and talk to you more about clients, but when we're on the topic of of these profile services, uh, what Colby and Omnia, do they provide the kind of training to you that enables you to sit in there in a client interview and make that kind of snap assessment?
0: No, it just comes from 35 years of experience, you know, when you're, when you're talking to people and just listening to them and seeing. Another thing that I know usually within 10 to 15 minutes and I need to know is whether my client or my colleague is visually oriented or auditory. Because about 65% of the people are visually oriented, about 30% are auditory, about 5% are kinetic. And when somebody is repeating things to you and they're using words like, I hear you, I hear what you're saying, or they're holding their hand to their ear, then you know that they're auditory and that they are listening to what you're saying and that you need to get the message clear during the meeting because they may not read as well later. On the other hand, if they're visual, they say things like, oh, I see what you mean. They're looking at a sheet of paper, they're drawing. Then you want to use your charts. You want to make sure you have a lot of visual images. And it doesn't have to be fancy. It's just a legal pad with a pen and paper sitting in the middle of the table. So I want to know that, too. And if they're kinetic, which means that they really put things together like a contractor does in three dimensions, they can really have a very difficult time listening. They can have a difficult time visualizing so you you have to kind of stay more close to where they are in the communication and and ask them to, to help you to re-explain and also when you can to make it look like a building pretend like this is a building pretend like this is a box I put the circle on the box those people will typically have a lot of physical activity they've got pens in their mouth or they've got a pen in their hand Um, They're drawing three-dimensional things while you're talking. So I wanna know about that as well.
1: So it boils down to, and this may sound simplistic, but I don't think it really is, pay attention. That's
0: a great point. That's a great point. And say as little as possible. I tell the younger lawyers when I give the workshops at uh, University of Florida and Ava Maria Law School, that the less you say the better off you are because you want to know everything that the client is thinking. You want to know everything that the client has to say. You want to be very interested in the client. You want to be complimentary of what the client is proud of. You want to be able to help the client form a more positive image of themselves. That's really a much bigger job than trying to be a professor in the conference room to explain a lot of law that may not matter at all to, to the people you're talking to.
1: Are you a golfer?
0: Not at all. Completely uncoordinated. Okay.
1: <laughs> then I'll venture away from a golf term. <laughs> if you could go... I was going to say the word mulligan. Ah. If you could go back and get a do-over on anything in your career, what would it be?
0: I, in my earlier years... And still, now, sometimes by impulse, I have a tendency to think that clients want things to be inexpensive, uh, easy to deal with, and not necessarily overpapered. But I found over the years that it's much more important to do the right job, to check it twice to explain it thoroughly, and to spend all of the time needed to make sure that you're doing the right thing for the client. I never wanna rush my staff. I never wanna rush the lawyers who work with me. I never want to rush a client. Because while my turnaround time is important, keeping the bill reasonable is certainly important, but 10 years later when grandma dies, Everything's all about the quality of the work I did 10 years ago. So that's uh, something, if I could go back in time 25 years and tell my younger self, hey, slow it down, charge more, explain to the clients that you need to charge more, check it more frequently, be more careful, that's what I would do.
1: That's interesting. I've often thought the person that I am really writing for, I know I've got an immediate client, but when I'm preparing to trust or some other document, that what I'm writing for is that attorney who is going to look at it long after I've retired or I'm pushing up daisies or whatever. I'm writing for that other attorney that's going to look at it and hopefully say, well, this is, this is truly a nice piece of work.
0: Yeah, it does. I do take great pride in almost and many times during the week, view myself as a craftsman, building some beautiful paragraphs to really express what the client wants to happen. And the what ifs. And in my documents, I give a lot of examples. I know the old school is to never have an example in a document, so I'm certainly not of the old school. Because I will have documents that could have five to 10 different examples. I find that the clients understand examples, but don't necessarily understand the
1: legalese. The Trust Hacker is brought to you by TrustChimp, an educational resource for attorneys attempting to hack their way out of the confusing jungles of public benefits and tax law, and to reach the sunny uplands of Trust Nirvana. TrustChimp offers intensive three-day public benefits, tax, and trust training sessions described by attendees as intense, and one of the best CLEs ever. All states that have reviewed the Trust Summit materials have approved them for 14 CLE hours. Find out more at TrustChimp.com forward slash summits. You mentioned uh, your associates. What is the one thing that elder law estate planning trust attorneys do that drives you nuts they don't do what they
0: are what they say they're going to do what drives me nuts and what drives our clients nuts from previous law firms is simply lawyers and other professionals who need to do 6 things on a project and only do 4 and they forget to do the other two. Or they can't bring themselves to return a phone call, or they can't bring themselves to actually send a document that they promised. So everyone in our firm has gone to the Franklin Covey one day time management course. We have the old Ben Franklin style day planners that the Franklin Covey people sell and by gosh, we have lists of what we've promised to people and we either get those things out or we get apology, apologies out. Because one great mentor, a man named Dan Sullivan, says over and over again, if you want to be successful, you just have to show up on time, do what you said you're gonna do, and say please and thank you. And I think a lot of people, especially in the more hurried pace and the Internet age and the cell phone age, forget all about that.
1: Yep. Well said. We're going to get into some technical issues here in just a second. But I wanted to talk to you about your practice philosophy. And, And one story that I have heard you use is... Peter Drucker's Cathedral story. Do you mind taking a second to share that with us and how that should relate to someone who is listening? Oh, to
0: thank you. It? That's a great story and every time I tell it, I feel better. So, it's a story that I tell myself quite often. So, picture yourself back in the 1400s. You are a cathedral building inspector and you walk up to the cathedral in progress and there are three men breaking rocks to build a wall for the cathedral. And as the story goes, the first, he goes to the first man and says, what are you doing? And the man said, well, I'm breaking rocks. It is, break, it is backbreaking work. I really hate this work but it's the only way for me to get enough food to eat. I've been doing this for years and I'm gonna do it for the rest of my life. And that's what I'm doing. So he goes to the second man and he says, what are you doing? And the man says, I'm breaking rocks to build a wall. And I hope to get the wall done while I'm still alive. And I'm pleased with the way the wall's going it's not the worst job I've ever had, but I wish I had a better one. And then he went to the third man. And he said, what are you doing? And the third man said, I'm breaking rocks to build the most beautiful cathedral that has ever been raised in the entire world. And I only wish that I could be alive when this beautiful, beautiful cathedral is done. Every rock I break is another part of this amazing cathedral. I've looked at the drawings, I've talked to the people, and I'm just so proud to be a part of the effort. Well, the man came back five years later and he wanted to talk to these three guys. The first guy had died. The second guy was still breaking rocks to build the wall and reported that he felt the same thing that he felt before, that it was a better job than some, but not the best job he could find. And the third guy was gone because he had become an architect and was now designing and building his own cathedral in another city. So no matter what you do in life and especially what you do day in and day out in your job, which of those three guys do you wanna be? And what does it take for you to be the third guy? That's what we want to target.
1: Look, it was over a hundred years ago. An Italian economist, Vilfredo Pareto, made some observations that have rocked us to this day. The eighty-twenty observation, the eighty-twenty rule. There's some fancy economist or economic term for it as well, but you tend to use that a lot. How do you apply that in your practice? Well,
0: this is a really fantastic phenomenon, and I don't know if anyone will ever understand why it is, but you can certainly rely on the fact that 20% of the population of causation will result in 80% of the result. So, for example, it is well known that 20% of the customers of any given business will provide 80% of the revenue, and by the same token, another 20% of the customers of any business will provide 80% of the problems. 20% of your employees manage to get 80% of your work done. And 20% of your employees manage to make 80% of the mistakes. So in almost every part of your legal practice or any business, if you want to make things better, you can hone in on those 20% of the things that cause 80% of the problems and fix them. And you can hone in on those 20% of the products or 20% of the clients who give you 80% of your profitability and you can hone in on those. Which takes you to a next step and that is to identify your A clients, which are the 20% of your clients who give you 80% of your revenue, your B clients who aren't quite A clients, and your C clients who are the 20% of the clients who give you 80% of the problems. And think about how you are going to logically and and by a method have more A clients and fewer C clients. Promote whatever B clients you can to being A clients, and let the C clients either promote themselves to being B or A clients, or find other lawyers who may be better suited for them.
1: Do you ever try to um, screen them out on the front end? Do you know who M- Michael Port is? Yeah. Um, He's one of my favorite business coaching type guys, and he he uses the red velvet rope analogy, which is very similar to that. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, you know, it's some Manhattan nightclub. Think of, like, Studio 54 back in its heyday, and there at the front door to the club, there is a huge, well-turned-out, but huge bouncer. And right next to him are two gold posts and a red velvet rope. And there's a line down the block. And if you look okay to him, you get past the velvet rope. And if you don't look okay, forget it. You aren't going in. And, and he applies that to, to picking your customers, picking your, your clients. Do you try to screen them out on the front end? I mean, if you see someone that's gonna be a D client, do you just say, I can't do this?
0: You know, it's, it's interesting. Every lawyer has a different way of doing this. With me as a tax lawyer, what's worked historically, to be quite honest, is a silly little thing. And that is that I don't do a free initial consultation. My secretary will get on the phone with a potential client and say he's 5.75 an hour. Um, he'll be glad to get with you on phone or, or uh, in person. We do take a retainer. We re- return whatever part uh, you don't spend. And when the client says, "Oh well, you know the other lawyers are giving free consults, or that sounds kind of high," the secretary simply says, "Well, that's what people are paying. He must be pretty good." But you know. There are other law firms that give free consultations, and we could even give you some names of some of those firms. And I just have found over the years that those clients who come in um, not expecting a free lunch will generally get along with me pretty well. I'll get along with them pretty well. I'll break bread on a project. I'll get started. If I get any red flags, then I'll stop or I'll explain to the client what the red flag is. If things go well, then I will embrace the client and and try to engage them in other projects I can do for them. If things don't go well, I'll finish what I took on and I'll be done with them and try to keep a low profile. And that's what has worked for me. When we have clients that obviously are not showing the traits of an A client, we will let them know what the issue is the one that concerns me the most is if anyone is rude to my team if anyone is rude to my team I will ask them you know is there any problem with what Guinevere did for you because Guinevere said you didn't sound very happy oh no 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 I was just having a bad day okay because Guinevere is really important to me as is everyone on my team so the clients eventually learn that they need to treat our team well and I've learned over the years that any client who behind your back is negative or rude to your, to your team, that client will eventually stab you in the back. The same goes for clients who don't pay their bills on time. We have the billing person call them, offer a payment plan, will be very polite. But if they're just nasty about it, then we just know they're not a good fit because they're rude. I don't vote for rude political candidates and I don't like to have rude clients. I like clients who follow the golden rule and I do my best to follow the golden rule. What,
1: well, do you ever cut a client loose? Fire yes. them? Yes, you
0: if you if you're not if you're not firing 2 to 5% of your client base, the people you work with every year, just in terms of not continuing to do services or asking them to go elsewhere then you are doing a disservice to yourself. The law of math says that you are going to have clients that you need to fire, and you need to go ahead and terminate them as politely and as painlessly as possible before things get worse. A lot of my listeners
1: are either new to lawyering or new to a solo practice having come from a bigger firm where everything is taken care of for them, uh, or they're new to elder law, they're transitioning into elder law. But in any of those categories, one of the touchiest subjects is fees. and, And we've mentioned that. And invariably, at least from what I've seen, these folks tend to undercharge. Do you have any advice for them?
0: Well, it is a significant mistake to undercharge. First of all, it is extremely dangerous, and it invites malpractice to give a client a fixed fee where you don't have the ability to adjust the fee upward. If it turns out that the client creates a lot more work or that there are aspects of this project that are going to cost you a lot of time and money, So you have to be careful with that. The second thing to remember is you're spoiling the child. If you bring a client in with a lost leader attitude, then you're always gonna have the expectation from that client that they can negotiate your fees down. You are much better off charging an extra 20% and having 20% of of the clients leave you. You're better off mathematically You're doing almost the same amount of work for only 80, I mean you're getting almost the same amount of fees for 80% of the efforts. In fact, one of my mentors was a very good CPA and he told me that whenever he met with a new client, he would send them a slightly high bill for the consultation because he felt that that was a great test. The ones who just paid it and didn't say anything he knew were gonna be great, great clients and the ones who called and complained, he was able to have that conversation. And the conversation is, I want to be the best lawyer I can be for you. I want my team to be the best team that could ever be put together. My people are not inexpensive. My library is not inexpensive. We need to know that we're making a good living doing your work. And I need to be worried about your welfare, not whether you're gonna pay me. I've got plenty of other things to do. There's no hard feelings if you want to go to a discount lawyer, but I've decided not to be a discount lawyer. And I think most clients will understand that, and the ones who don't understand that need to go down the road. It's in your interest to let them go to your colleagues and not to have them yourself.
1: Do you ever do any work for friends? Well, I try not to. <laughs> You know, you have to do work for friends, you have to do work for
0: family, but you really, really need to draw the line and be very careful about how you do that because they will intentionally or unintentionally take advantage or expose you to malpractice. So the first thing I do when it's a friend is I say, send me a long email with every detail because I've learned that people will let me spend three hours doing legal work for them for free and they will not spend 15 minutes getting organized. So that will often repel it. Another thing I'll often do is say, that's not really my area of specialty, but my friend John Smith does that work and because we're friends, I will call him and ask him to give you a free initial consult. And then I will call John Smith and I'll pay John Smith and I won't... i 'll pay him out of my own pocket and i 'll tell my friend i 've done that because the friendship work can be a real problem i don 't mean just a little in, in, i don 't mean just a little inconvenience it can become a major problem for you in your practice, and you can lose your friend. My name is Henry Lewandowski. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney in Havertown, Pennsylvania, which is right near Philadelphia. I attended a Trust Chimp Summit in Philadelphia recently, and I had a great experience. I've attended a lot of CLE covering trust over my 20 years in this practice area, and I think Bob's approach is great, and it's the best I've ever experienced. Uh, Bob combines knowledge of the subject matter with a lot of humor and passion, if it's possible to use a term like passion for such a confounding subject as trust law, but maybe that's where uh, it helps unconfound things. Anyway, I thought the trust champ seminar was very rewarding and I've convinced my partner to attend the next summit, and then we plan to to both attend the second summit later this year because of course everything is better the second time around.
1: Let's shift gears here for just a second, and I know we're running a bit short on time and I I don't want to hold you over too much. You're busy. But, Alan, I've been reading your stuff for years, particularly about basis issues. And one regret that I have is in this episode, we just don't have time to talk about your JEST, you know, the Joint Exempt Step-Up Trust. And for the listener who may not know, that's that's a technique that minimizes estate taxes and maximizes stepped-up basis. Uh, It's aimed, I think, towards the higher-end clients. And I'd love to talk to you, Alan, about some modifications in the elder law context that I think would improve it in the elder law context. Basically going with your A and B credit, shelter, trust, calling them something else and and dropping the Q-tips, which you rarely need in the elder law context. But I don't want to bore the listeners right now. But uh, in the elder law context, as I've often said, Estate tax lawyers are from Mars, elder law attorneys are from Venus. We work off the same celestial charts, but we breathe in different atmospheres, different gases. And in the elder law context, basis might very well be the most important tax issue that we're looking at, uh, particularly when trusts are involved. And we may not give a fig about estate tax inclusion because most of our clients in the elder law context just aren't up there where estate tax is a concern. So that's something we're concerned about. But, but one issue, rather than rehash and keep us on a reasonable time frame, is, is one, one question that's come up that came from a listener. And at first I thought it was sort of a silly question, but the more I looked at this thing, the more it really bothered me. And I've, I've done a little looking at it. Typical in the elder law context, I suspect there are a lot out there doing this mom and dad set up a joint irrevocable trust. And it might say a special power, testamentary special power in the survivor. It might be a grander trust, but it's probably going to be a grander trust with a power of substitution, which isn't going to get you state inclusion in and of itself. And what they're really after is stepped up basis, but it's I think there's a lot of ignorance out there when it comes to joint trust and how the basis rules with joint trust, assuming mom and dad fund the thing 50-50. may not always be that way, but assuming they fund it 50-50, I'm a little concerned about what happens to basis on the death of the survivor. The way I read it, Alan, and correct me if I'm wrong, is I'm thinking, you know, it, it, it's, it's strange because you don't know who's going to die first. You don't have a crystal ball. But when that second spouse dies with a, special, a testamentary special power, okay, they'll get stepped up basis for sure in their half or whatever they contributed under you know 2038. But what happens to that predeceasing spouse's share? And, and the more I looked at that, I, I really don't have an answer for that. And I don't know if there's an answer out there. I didn't see anything that popped up very quickly. I don't know if you've got any input.
0: Well, if you have a power of appointment over anybody's assets, then if it's a general power of appointment, so it's at least exercisable in favor of creditors of the estate of the decedent, then I would expect to get a stepped up basis on those assets.
1: Oh, yeah, under 2041, but in the elder law context, uh, this is kind of unique to elder law, an attorney that at least knows what they're doing over on the Medicaid side of things is going to be petrified of having a general power in someone who could eventually end up on Medicaid, which has nothing to do with tax. It has everything to do with Medicaid.
0: Right. So would you be able to have that power if it was only effective if approved by trust protectors? Or would you be able to simply give trust protectors the power, the right to bestow that power shortly before the death of the surviving spouse when it's clear that they don't need to go on Medicaid?
1: I suspect that's where the answer is, something to do with trust protectors. Um, I, was, I was fooling around With that, and I'd have to go back and look at 2041 again, whether—I don't know whether a general power that has to be exercised with the approval of a non-adverse party is going to get you there. I don't know. Yeah, but when you read the regulations under—when you read the regulations, the as long
0: as, you, as it's a non-adverse party who must approve the exercise, you should get your step up. You do have your inclusion. We've been taking old irrevocable trusts where mom or dad set it up and retain no powers whatsoever. We've been going into court with consent of all beneficiaries and installing a testamentary power of appointment in favor of creditors of the estate. It's, and to the mm-hmm. judge, hey, when Grandpa set this trust up, there were tax reasons that he didn't retain a power, but he really would have preferred to retain a power, and now there's tax reasons to give him one. Judge, do you mind if we give him one? And the judge signs an order and gives him a power, and it's only exercisable with consent of non-adverse parties.
1: Then am I wrong, though, in the hypo I gave you, which I may not be so hypothetical from what I'm hearing, that there's a special, a special power, they're worrying about Medicaid, a special power in the survivor. Okay, that'll get you stepped up basis in half the trust assets, I think. But what happens at the time the trust is funded? (laughs) When you have, obviously, one of the two of them is going to be the predeceasing spouse, and you don't know which one. Um, I was even thinking, is there a gift there? i I haven't thought through the thing completely but the whole situation troubles me.
0: Yeah. So this is a and this is a trust for the benefit of descendants or who are the beneficiaries?
1: Yeah. 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 The kids. Okay. There there's some kind of, you know, sprinkle standard in there for the benefit of the children. So
0: it's what we call a defective grantor trust because the grantors have the power to yep. replace trust assets with assets of equal value. Yep. So you have an argument that on the first death you get a step up in half the assets. Under the article that Jonathan Blotmacher and Mitch Gans wrote years ago, which basically say when a trust is disregarded for income tax purposes, I mean, yeah, when a trust is disregarded for income tax purposes, the assets of the trust are considered to be owned
1: by mom and dad. But you know what concerns me about that article? I'm familiar with that article, and it's an intriguing article, but... There is, and I don't have it in front of me, there was a, uh, a CCA, CCA that came
0: out. CCA that
1: disagrees with the article. Y- yeah, and actually mentioned the power of substitution. I went, ooh. Yeah. Ow. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, Howard Zaritsky at the uh, heckerlein Institute in January 2015 said that the IRS does not have substantial authority to say that there's not a step up, so it's not unreasonable to go ahead and report the step up or do your income tax reporting assuming the step up. It's up to you whether you want to put a notation on the tax return that you're taking an inconsistent position. Howard Zyritsky doesn't think you have to put that notation on the tax return because he doesn't think the IRS has support for their position any better than Blotmacher and Gans have support for for their position. Mm-hmm. But to my knowledge, the only thing you can do to get that step up for sure would be to put it, I mean, to go ahead and make sure that that surviving spouse has some sort of power of appointment, which you may need to install by court order years later when you're sure that they don't need to go on Medicaid.
1: Yeah. Well, before we leave the technical side of things, I was going to ask you if you had any problems with my posting your Jest article, because even for the elder law attorney who's not particularly concerned about estate taxes, I thought, you know, it would be, uh, uh, it's a good read, very, very informative. They're your part one and part two, or I don't know if you have a link. I can post it in the uh, the notes uh, on the website. Yeah, no, i will be
0: glad to send them to you. And uh, we really enjoyed writing those articles, and they do have a lot of interesting technical twists that are covered. So.
1: Now they're good articles. I I enjoyed reading them. I could kind of remember reading them. There you came out with them what a couple of years ago, I think. I
0: yeah, two thousand
1: thirteen. Still valid. Anyway, I don't want to uh, keep you too much longer. Um, why don't you take a couple of minutes to tell us what you're up to, how people can find you, maybe put in a blog uh, plug for the Thursday report, which I really enjoy. Uh, so. Think of it as your commercial. It's all yeah, yours. so we
0: are a five-lawyer law firm in Clearwater, Florida, which I founded about 33 years ago. My partners, Ken Crotty and Christina Colo, both have LLMs from the University of Miami. The three of us give about 20 webinars a year on different national uh, platforms. We write a lot of articles. We also maintain books on Florida creditor protection, Florida tax planning, Florida medical law, because we, re- we represent a lot of physicians. Most of what we write starts off in our Thursday report, which goes out every Thursday or every other Thursday, depending upon how busy we are. We send that free of charge to anyone who would like to receive it, or you could just Google Gassman Thursday report and you'll see what it looks like. We're not responsible for all of the humor. Uh, a friend of mine from middle makes <laughs> a lot of the humor and he's pretty darn funny, I have to say. Uh, we're doing a series of webinars with Bloomberg b One is called Essential Elements where they're all free once a month. So you can just search Bloomberg Gassman Essential Elements and sign up for those. We also have a Alan Gassman channel on Interactive Legal where for a small annual uh, subscription price you have access to all of our Florida books a lot of our legal forms a lot of our Excel spreadsheets and also something I'm very proud of our estate view software that we've designed with Professor Jerry hash which enables you to do estate tax uh, projections and illustrations so, I'm trying to have fun. We always have three to four law students working for us. I meet with two of them every morning at eight o'clock and give them something to run with. I get to see what they did at five o'clock and I really, really work hard to make sure that I and everyone works here who works here enjoys what we do and can feel like we're building the cathedral.
1: Alan, that's absolutely great. A wonderful way to wind things up. And, um, I'm probably going to come back and try and coax you back on the Trust Hacker before too long. But, Alan, thanks again. Thank you, Bob,
0: and thanks for everything you do. I saw your presentation in New York. It was excellent. And I've I've read your writings, and I, I really have my hat off for what you're doing here with this podcast system. It's great.
1: Well, thank you, Alan. Alan Gassman, that was great, that was fun, that was inspiring. And I really had to struggle to come up with the one thing that he said that I thought was the most interesting, the most profound, the most useful, the hack. Let's see if you agree with me. Here's my take on the hack. Say as little as possible.
0: I tell the younger lawyers when I give the workshops at uh, University of Florida and Ava Maria Law School that the less you say, the better off you are because you want to know everything that the client is thinking. You want to know everything that the client has to say. You want to be very interested in the client. You want to be complimentary of what the client is proud of. You want to be able to help the client form a more positive image of themselves. That's really a much bigger job than trying to be a professor in the conference room to explain a lot of law that may not matter at all
1: to, to the people you're talking to. And that's it. Pay attention to the client in front of you. As lawyers, we tend to be a loquacious lot, and we talk too much. Or we get nervous, and we talk too much. Or we believe we need to sell the client on ourselves. And one way to do that is to show how much we know so we talk too much. Think of going to see a surgeon with a pain. You want the surgeon to make the pain go away, but you definitely don't want the surgeon to go into too much detail as to how he or she is going to make that pain go away. The same thing applies to us as attorneys. The client may not necessarily care how you're going to do it. They just want you to do it. Alan's finely honed skills with clients came out in another part of the interview with him when he was discussing the visual versus the auditory versus the kinetic clients. First, you've got to identify the client type. The way you do that is by paying attention. Then you need to shift your communication skills. Remember how Alan was talking about the clients who would say, I see what you're saying. And then he would shift to visual demonstration methods charts, diagrams, whatever, Or I hear what you're saying, and he would shift more to the spoken word. And then he talked about the kinetic type and how he really had to kind of combine the two. I chose this hack because it best summarized this skill set, paying attention and saying as little as possible. It reminded me of something my late father used to always say to me, and that was, every time you're talking, you're hearing something you already know. And I'm going to wind it up. Alan Gasman. that was a great talk that we had. We've got a trust summit coming up in Dallas, and we've got um, this summer in Melbourne, Florida. Check them out at trustchimp.com forward slash summits, or you can find out more about Dallas by trustchimp.com forward slash Dallas. And on that happy note, I am out of here. Trustchimp.com